thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. How are you doing today? Uh, morning, Reedy. Very good, thank you. Missing you guys. Oh, we're missing you as well. You, well, you're lucky that you were here two weeks ago. We're running out of fuel in many areas, especially in Johannesburg, because there's a strike. The fuel is there, but the truck drivers and the workers are on strike, so it's not getting to the petrol station. So there's a lot of uh, panic and anxiety. We had this 10 years ago. Um, people were campaigning about the price of fuel, yes, and especially road hauliers. So lots and lots of lorry drivers all got together and across the whole country blockaded the refineries so none of the distributions could occur so as a result the whole country went by and in fact it was the quietest uh, time i can remember because <laughs> there were no cars on the road it was amazing really it was just so peaceful and you realize how much noise there is now created by traffic but obviously it was a bit of a pain because no one could go to work or do anything useful but it was nice and peaceful for for a few days anyway okay tell me about this new research on spinal injuries and spinal regeneration Yeah, well, one of the big problems with injuries to the brain and to the spinal cord is that very often we view them as permanent. There's very limited capacity for at least mammals and big animals like us to repair their brain. But what scientists have been trying to do for many years is to encourage nerve cells in the brain to regrow if they get cut, for example. One of the problems is, is, though, that if you injure your spinal cord, and the common way that people do this is either if they have road accidents but also if people dive into swimming pools and their head hits the bottom of the pool Mm. and the compression can then fracture their vertebrae in their neck and then sever the cord. And if you do this, even if you reset the position of all the bones, the spinal cord never regrows properly. And so people end up with their head cut off, literally, neurologically from the rest of their body. And so they have no control over the rest of their body. And one of the, the most damning things about that is that the control of your diaphragm, the muscle that helps you breathe, comes out of the nerve cells which are in the higher part of the neck. So if, even if you, you cut the, the spinal cord there, you still lose the ability to breathe on your own. So scientists would very much like to try to restore some of the connections in the neck because if you can get someone having even breathing movements that are their own, they're much healthier. And that's been the long-term goal. And there's an amazing paper. It's published in the journal Nature this week. It's by a researcher called Jerry Silver who's based at Case Western Reserve University in America. Mm. And what he and his team have been able to do is to use a piece of nerve from the leg of a a rat and graft it into the central nervous system, into the break into the spinal cord in some rats that have had their spinal cord partially cut. Mm. And what they're able to do in this setting is to get nerves to regrow through this piece of peripheral leg nerve 
and reconnect with the right part of the spinal cord in order to restore respiratory movements in these rats. And the real breakthrough here, because people have tried using nerve grafts like this in the past, was that they also combined the treatment with an enzyme called um, chondroitinase ABC. Now, what this enzyme does is it breaks down a chemical called chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans. And the reason they've done this is because scientists have shown that when you injure the brain mm. around the injury site and even at remote sites, you build up this scar tissue um, and it contains these chemicals called chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans. And they seem to have no-go or switch-off signals for nerve growth. So if you remove those chemicals with this enzyme, nerves feel much happier about trying to regrow through an area that's been injured. And if you help them with this nerve graft as well, it seems to enormously benefit the regeneration process. And in these rats that they did this on, mm -hmm. um, the ones that had the enzyme plus the nerve graft, 80% of them re-established normal, autonomous, independent breathing movements after this injury within 12 weeks. And they know that the nerve graft was doing the job because when they then went back later and cut the nerve graft, the breathing movements in the rats were stopped again. So this suggests that it could be possible to use this technique uh, initially in a limited way, but possibly with enormous therapeutic benefit in people who have recently had spinal cord injuries in order to improve their outcomes significantly. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. And uh, let's go to, is it Harold? Harold, are you calling us from Rosebank here? Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Lily. Mm. Uh, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, not too shabby, man. Uh, just got a question for the, the, the chap there. Um, when I was a kid, I used to, I, I used to have scars on my legs, uh, sores, open scars sometimes, and I used to get my dog to lick them. Sounds a bit icky, I know, but... Uh, and for a couple of days later, and the scars would disappear sooner than if my mom would put them, uh, uh, be a and stuff like that. It'll heal quicker when a dog licks it. So the Once. healing effects of a dog's tongue, basically. Yeah, dog's life. Okay. I know it sounds but I was just curious. I think you meant for it to sound But anyway, Chris, <laughs> thanks, Harold. Eel. Hi, Harold. Um, this is quite a risky practice, and I'll tell you why. I asked a South African microbiologist who's a friend of mine. He works in a hospital up the road from us here. Um, what would you prefer, a dog bite or a human bite? Because uh, we, if you had to have one, obviously, not that I was dishing mm. them out, but if, if you had to have one of the two, which would be worse? And he said it would depend where in the world you were talking about. If you were talking about a country where rabies could be a problem, then getting licked or bitten by a dog is always necessarily the worst outcome because rabies is transmitted by saliva and other body fluids. And if it gets into an open wound, rabies is universally fatal with very few... I think one very rare exception. Um, on the other hand, human bites, although they may contain human infections, they're less likely to be as bad for you as rabies. Um, so getting yourself licked by a dog is always a bad idea if you've got an open wound because there are other nasty bacteria that live in a dog's mouth because dogs are adapted to have them in there, um, which are not good to get into wounds, gram-negative bacteria and anaerobic bacteria and things like that. So it's, it's probably a bad idea no one should go and get their dogs to lick wounds because you, you will get infected if you're not careful. In terms of why this should speed up wound healing, um, there's a number of possibilities. One of them is that wounds heal poorly if there are foreign bodies, other material in the wound. So if you've fallen over on a gritty road and you've got lots of dirt and bits of, bits of material and muck in your cut, those foreign bodies help the infection bacteria and so on to cling on and it's much harder for the immune system to move in 
to get rid of that infection and for fresh tissue to form. If you cleanse a wound by soaking it, wiping it, or you get someone to lick it for you, <laughs> licking out the wound actually helps to get rid of some of the foreign bodies in the muck. So it's automatically a cleaner surface and it's easier for the immune system and the repair systems to kick in and to lay down fresh tissue. So it might be that if um, Harold had cuts to his skin that were contaminated with foreign bodies and, and muck, that they would have healed up more slowly because there was other stuff in there. Whereas when his dog licked them, perhaps apart from giving him the odd uh, bacterial uh, infection in them, um, which his immune system luckily dealt with, it would have helped to get rid of some of that foreign material so it was easier for it to heal. But I, I wouldn't recommend the process. And you're, you'd probably be better if you have to lick it to use your own saliva rather than someone else's or your pet's. All right, let's go to Farouk in uh, Everton. Hi. Hi, hi, Verity. Fine, thank you. Uh, really, I have uh, two questions for the scientist. Um, okay, my, really, my first question is, uh, you know you get these gas masks, right? And, like, for example, now when they actually shoot like, a gas canister into a room and they tie wear this mask, I actually wanted to know how does those gas masks actually work. And my second question was that, uh, for example, now, you know, like what they see with the CO2 emission levels in our atmosphere becoming to very high levels, I wanted to know, is there ever going to come a time where we can actually wear masks ourselves just to uh, separate oxygen from the, uh, from the carbon dioxide? That's very interesting. Will... You'll listen on the radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll listen on the radio. Okay, Chris? Hi, Farouk. Yeah, two lovely questions. Mm. First of all, the gas masks one. <clears throat> when you are in a room and someone puts some gas into the room that uh, is there to irritate or be toxic, um, tear gas is the most common one that you're referring to pepper spray, for example. This uh, is a derivative of chili peppers. It's capsaicin, which is uh, not actually harmful, but it does strongly activate the nerve cells that that we have in our skin and our eyes that signal pain. And so it's intensely painful to any mucous membrane. So eyes, surface skin, mouth, nose, it's awful. And the way in which gas masks protect is partly because they cover the whole face. So they stop the eyes getting the irritant chemicals in them and your nose. But then in terms of what you're breathing in, how does that get cleaned up? Well, they have a very good filter system on the front of the gas mask. And this works in two ways. One, there's a coarse filter. So you have um, a sort of very fine sieve, for want of a better word, which sieves out big particles down to, down to sort of the size of bacteria and viruses. And then behind that, you have a chemical filter. And usually this contains a very high proportion of what's called activated charcoal or activated carbon this is carbon which has got very porous structures in it so in other words it's very very open high porosity so gas can flow through and because it's got a very high surface area it means that there's lots of opportunity for things that are in the gas stream to partition or get soaked onto the carbon and because the gas that's the toxin is relatively uh, less concentrated than the oxygen you want to breathe in, then it tends to remove most of the nasty gas and leave the majority of the oxygen going through. So as a result, you just end up with the carbon becoming slowly saturated with the toxic chemical, but not your lungs, which is a good thing. In terms of the atmosphere, um, if you get the CO2 level rising too high, um, then you become very acidotic. In other words, you... you Um, end up with your blood becoming acid. So Mm. carbon dioxide is far more dangerous for us than low oxygen. So if you put someone in a sealed room, you know, this idea that people, they're in a room and they've got no no way out, it's sealed off, 
um, how long do they survive? Well, actually, they survive for a lot less long than you'd think because although there may be lots and lots of oxygen in the room, if there's no way for the carbon dioxide to get out, then they're not going to be able to excrete carbon dioxide from their body. They will become very, very acidotic and they will die. Um, so your survival time is not very long. Mm. Uh, it's unlikely the atmosphere would become so CO2 enriched that that would happen. Um, but at the same time, um, we, have, we mustn't sort of think, oh, well, that's okay then, because you don't have to change the levels of these gases very much before lots of natural processes begin to go off kilter. And that has onward effects on the environment. And if the environment goes off whack, mm. then we, it can't support us anymore because plants don't grow properly and we need them to get energy from the sun and turn it into food. All right, thank you very much, Farouk. Those were very interesting questions. And by the way, if you're wondering why I'm not reading your SMSs, my SMS line is down, our screen is down. I don't have any new SMSs. So perhaps you've been sending and they're not coming through. I'm not ignoring them. I'm sorry about that. I'll let you know as soon as we're up and running again. Let's take a break. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And we're taking your calls, your questions for Chris Smith. Give us a call on 021-446-0567, Just some SMSs from last week. Peter sent an SMS, Chris, saying, why do you get earache when you are in a plane landing in Amsterdam and not in other countries? I wouldn't say it's just Amsterdam. <laughs> Even going from here to Cape Town, some people have blocked ears or an earache and, and so on. And I have a friend, uh, Chris, whose uh, eardrum ear burst or something like that from, from the pressure of it all she was in such excruciating pain what why does that happen well perhaps she had a cold or something beforehand mm. um the reason this occurs is because if you were to look inside your head at the back of your throat are two tiny tubes one on each side which go from the back of your nose to each of your ears and those are called your eustachian tubes and they go to a structure called the middle ear because if you stick your finger in your ear hole it if you could stick it in far enough, it would end at your eardrum. Mm. And this is a flat sheet of tissue which is moved in and out when sound waves, which are compression waves coming through the air, hit it and make it vibrate. That then transfers the vibrations to several tiny bones, which then transfer the sound waves into the inner ear, your cochlea. But in order for the eardrum to be able to move in and out inside your inner ear, it needs to be able to feel no resistance by uh, because if, if there was air in there and it was sealed on the opposite side, then every time the sound waves tried to squash the eardrum, then they would be squashing the air in the inner ear, and that would oppose the movement because you'd be squashing the air, and as a result, you wouldn't hear very well. So that's why the, the middle ear has to be open to atmospheric pressure. So in order to keep the pressure balanced, it goes down this tiny tube, the eustachian tube, to the back of your throat. If, however, you have a cold or a virus or some other infection or an anatomical problem, and the eustachian tube gets blocked, then if you get snot and other kinds of muck in there, the air can't move in and out of the eustachian tube in order to equalise the pressure in your middle ear. And as a result, um, when you change the atmospheric pressure, in other words, the air around your head goes up in pressure or down in pressure, mm -hmm. the, you don't get a corresponding change in pressure in the middle ear on the other side of the eardrum, and this can make the eardrum deflect, either bulge outwards or inwards according to what's happened to the outward or inward pressure and as a result if you deform the eardrum in that way it's very painful mm. so when people get an ear ache what's actually happening to them is that they've blocked their eustachian tube they've got some infection in their middle ear and the bugs in their middle ear are making pus and other material that's swelling in the inner ear 
and the pressure can't equalise, so the eardrum stretches and bulges and gets very, very painful. When you're on the aeroplane, what's happening is that because the, pre the cabin is pressurised, but only pressurised to an altitude of about 7,000 feet, you're still feeling the effect of pressurisation between naught ground level and 7,000 feet, um, and, and 7,000 feet back to ground again. So as a result, there are some mild changes in air pressure across your, across your eardrum, and so you will actually feel um, the eardrum stretching and shrinking if you can't equalise the pressure. And the best way to see this, if you take a bag of crisps on an aeroplane or a bottle of water or something, mm -hmm. or in my case, when you get your luggage off the plane and you find that your shampoo had some, when you put it into your hand luggage, had some air in the yeah. shampoo, uh, it will have exploded all over the inside of your shower bag. Um, or in the case of bags of crisps, because there's a little bit of gas, nitrogen, in the bag of crisps, which is put in there at sea level, when you go up in the aeroplane, because there's less pressure around the bag of crisps now, the pressure inside the bag is relatively higher than the pressure outside the bag, so the bag expands and blows up more. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you go on the airplane, take your bag of crisps and you'll see them. <laughs> yeah. And, and Chris, does somebody su suggested that one must chew gum uh, to avoid that. I don't know what that's supposed to do or wearing earplugs. Do those solutions work? I'm quite skeptical. Well, earplugs won't work because they don't form a perfect seal with um, your auditory canal anyway, so there's still going to be a pressure imbalance. Um, even if you had a blocked your station tube. Chewing gum's a really good one. Oh, yeah? The movement of your jaw, you don't actually have to chew gum. You can just sort of make swallowing movements, actually. We, we usually, if this happens to children, we say to them, just, you know, just swallow a few times. And those movements actually open up the opening, the uh, meatus, as it's known, the hole, where the eustachian tube joins the back of the nose. So it encourages the eustachian tube to open and this allows gas to move mm. along it um, and equalizes the pressure across your eardrum. And that's why you'll feel your ears pop, because as you open the station tube, it'll click and pop. And that's the pressure equalizing in your inner ear, in your middle ear. Okay. Let's go to James in Parkhurst. Thank you for your patience. And I'm coming to you next. Hi there, James. Hello, Reedy, and hello, Chris. Your show the other day, week in uh, St. John's College was wonderful. Oh, wow. I wonder how many, how many people have blown up the wheelie bins. A <laughs> um, thing I've often wondered about is continuously welded railway lines. In the old days, you used to have gaps with fish plates, and you had that lovely clickety-click, clickety-click. And then yep. some years ago, they introduced continuous rails. Yep. With the temperature ranging from sort of zero to maybe 40 degrees, say, in this country, why do yep. these things not buckle? Um, I can only think, I don't know the answer, I need an engineer to help me with this one, but I can only think, because um, when they do the welds now, the way you weld those railway lines together is to actually use thermite reaction. So you reduce iron oxide to liquid iron using aluminium powder, and you pour the liquid iron into the interface between the two bits of rail, so you end up with a continuous, effectively a continuous piece of metal. And this way... Um, the old, in the old days, rails used to buckle because if a, sec a section of rail um, expanded at a different rate to the one next door to it, then obviously the, two, the, the rail would expand and expand until it had taken up all the space, and then it would hit the other rail, and because there was a, an area of weakness where the two rails were meeting, then that would be the buckle point. But if you physically weld a rail to another rail and make it one continuous piece of metal, as long as they can move and expand longitudinally by spreading out the expansion longitudinally along the length of the rail, then there shouldn't actually be a problem with buckling because if they're properly supported, as they should be, and they can, as I say, 
take up the slack along the length of the rail. It should be okay. But if anyone um, who's an engineer knows exactly how you compensate mm. for expansions effects over very long lengths of railway, I'd be really interested to hear if you can tell me what, what the parameter, the engineering parameters are. That'd be wonderful. Wonderful. And please do give us a call. Thank you for the question, James. Hopefully somebody's listening and they can add on to that. Let's go to Anne in Bryanston. Hi. Hi, Reedy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Welcome. I have a question for your scientist, man. I've been wondering for ages now, why is it that in America, eggs are all, the eggshells are white? And in South Africa, they brown. Okay, nice. Well, question. Americans have to be different. <laughs> I mean, we have brown eggs in Britain as well. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it, it probably reflects the um, species of chicken, actually, because um, I mean, and I'm speculating here. I'm not a chicken expert, expert even. <laughs> um, excuse me, sorry. Chicken and egg, huh? Couldn't resist the pun. Yeah. But. Um, there are different species of chicken that definitely make different sizes and different hues or colorations of eggs. They put different amounts of colored pigments onto the onto their shells when they make the eggs. Uh, I suspect that probably the stocks of chickens, maybe the battery stocks that they've got, that they're using to make those household eggs, are probably of a certain breed um, which happen to make white eggs and they've, just, they've probably selected for them because they found they sell well. Because Americans are a bit fussy, aren't they? No, just no, no offense to Americans. So I suspect they probably like clean, pure white eggs. Um, you, it's very hard to actually buy. Um, or, or most of the things that you want to make with eggs in America you use powdered egg. Actually, um, a friend of mine who lives in Maryland, I go and stay with them sometimes, and uh, they make all their ingredients and all their all their sort of recipes with eggs. They don't use fresh eggs; they just use um, powdered egg. So I'm, I'm sure it doesn't taste as good. Okay. I think the salmonella definitely adds to the flavor. <laughs> okay, uh, is it Guido in Midrand? It is, it is. Yes. Okay, yes, you've got a response to the uh, the yes. railway line. Well, yeah. yes, the, the, the rail uh, question. The reason why it doesn't buckle is because they pre-stress them before they weld them. So they pull them. Okay, Chris? I don't know. They pull them, Guido. They pull them, yes. So the, so the, the expansion coefficient is actually taken care of in the pulling before the weld. But what about when um, when it gets cold? Because obviously in Joburg, it's zero at night sometimes. Certainly it was when I was well, there. Well, it, it won't bother And then it's it. 40 degrees some days. So how do you yeah, account it, for that huge... It can, it can yield. As long as it exceed, doesn't exceed the yield stress of the of the metal, you can stretch them. They just get slightly thinner. Oh, excellent. So how do they apply enough tension along each section in order when they, when they stress Look, them? How I they don't know if... if uh, you know, I'm not a railway engineer, but if you've seen these big... Uh, uh, Trains they send out when they level and when they, you know, they're tons and tons of pressure. Uh, they can pull them hydraulically. Uh, and I think that's, that's the way they do it because I actually wondered about it. If you just want the whole thing together, you'll just have one long, long stretch. If it was not pre-stressed, it'll still expand. The expansion would go somewhere. If it was just kept in line, it would then mean the rail would be two meters longer each end of a, a hundred kilometer line. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, exactly. so thank you. that's very helpful. Well, thank I, think, you very I think that is the answer. Okay, thank Brilliant. you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank Pleasure. you. Appreciate it. All right. So, are we happy with that, Chris? Uh, I like that one. If anyone can improve on that, sounds good. But if anyone can improve on that, it would be good to hear those ideas too. Why not, Chris? Thank you very much for chatting to us. But where are you this week? You're not in Cambridge, are you? Well, uh, I'm, I'm actually in Devon and the southwest of England. Um, my my phone cable is well, all my ISDN lines 
have been stolen again. Oh. Um, so I, I can't use any communication. So I had to come all the way to the southwest of England to stay with my relatives. Oh, shame. <laughs> but we're glad that you did it. Five times in nine months. Can you believe it? We, we actually, actually, our village made a Country Life magazine, the sort of magazine all about middle, middle-class Britain and country living. Uh, they actually written up about our village having its, its telephone connection stolen five times in... Um, in nine months. Com- Amazing. Commiseration. Commiserations to you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for chatting to us. Have a lovely weekend. Take care, Reedy. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, this time around, uh, coming live uh, to us from Devonshire, not Cambridge, as he usually does. Cable theft sounds familiar. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.